0: Lab Talk with Laura Listen I implore ya Won't never bore ya Lab Talk with Laura Always more in store ya Lab Talk with Laura Welcome to Lab Talk with Laura. Um, So today we're going to be trying out a new format. Normally we record in a studio and I have a couple scientists and a comedian co-host, but as you may have noticed, um, there's a global pandemic and so a lot of things have changed. So today we're going to be just hearing from me and a scientist, um, talking on the phone, having a appropriately socially distanced conversation, me on the East Coast, um, her on the West Coast. And I reached out to her over Twitter because she wrote a really great article about how she uses a method um, in her lab that is critical to understanding the COVID-19 testing and also some of the delays that we've experienced in the U.S. So I'll uh, let
1: her introduce herself.
2: So my name is Anna Mankina. I'm a graduate student at the University of Washington in the Genome Sciences Department, uh, and I work on cell lineage tracing.
1: Okay, cool. So you wrote this article for Medium about coronavirus tests. Um, mm-hmm. This was a couple of weeks ago at this point, which feels like the longest it, it feels like yeah. it was like months ago, but it mm-hmm. it was like less than two weeks ago. Yeah, that is scary to think about. But um you you know, you did a really great job explaining um how those tests work and what happened with the US. So, you know, you talk about how South Korea's been testing a lot of people and we've been testing way fewer by comparison. Um mm-hmm. so maybe could you just start out and explain um how does the testing work and, and why um why is there this difference?
2: Yeah, so I think um I think part of the reason that I that I thought to write this article is that there was there seemed to be this this big misconception that the tests used in South Korea were, were somehow or or anywhere else in the world were somehow fundamentally different than the tests being used in the US and that explained um you know to a large to a large extent the, the, the testing discrepancy between the two countries and um it, it turns out actually the tests are essentially the same there there are small differences between them that, that play part you know to to an extent play a role in um in some of the challenges that the US has faced in, in ramping up testing mm-hmm. but um but the tests are essentially the same and it turns out that um uh my understanding is that, that South Korea had um after the the MERS outbreak of 2015, they had put some very, very good, you know, plans and procedures in place for, for what happens if, if an outbreak happens again. And so they were uh, prepared in terms of supplies and in terms of, you know, where these tests would be developed and, and, um, and how they would be deployed, whereas um, there wasn't as much of a, a plan here. Okay. And so the big challenges in the U.S. have been um, both – uh, getting getting, getting a, a test up and running that, that works well and works consistently well across labs, um, as well as uh, regulatory challenges, regulatory um, hurdles that labs have to overcome in order to, you know, have permission to perform these tests in general.
1: Okay. So I know that the World Health Organization released their own test. Yes. And the U.S. did not take that test. Yeah. Do you know? Do you understand why? Is that something you know about?
2: Um. You know. So, so the the big difference between those tests, that the the test that was um, I think that the World Health Organization test was developed in Germany, and the big test or the big difference between those tests was the primers that were used. And and what that means is that in order to detect virus, um, what we're actually trying to detect is that virus's genetic information. Okay. viruses have RNA, which is similar to our DNA, and um, in order to detect a virus, we um, can use a method that allows us to make a bunch of copies of specific genetic information and then visualize those copies um, to, to see if the virus exists. So if we try to make a bunch of copies and nothing happens, it probably means there was no virus there to begin with. Um, but if we can make a bunch of copies then then we must have started out with some virus in our sample um, and so uh, the choices of you know you're not making copies of all of the virus's genetic information you're just choosing a, a small part so I think the way that I explain this in the article is that we can imagine that that the, the genetic information is an instruction manual and we're making copies of a single sentence okay and so yeah so so the sentence that was chosen by or you know actually it's a couple of different sentences that are being chosen there are a couple of you know we want this to be robust and so we want a a couple of different tests to make sure that that our results are right um and so it was those sentences that were different between the tests okay um and so it turns out to be sort of easier to copy some sentences than others and that has to do with with sort of how, how all this works but um it's one of those things that that's a very very common thing to do. I do this all the time, and it's 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 not always straightforward to design the best possible test to choose the right sentence, but it's very 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 easy to validate that in the lab okay. so um, okay uh my understanding is that that labs had various labs reported problems, some labs did not have problems, and so there's uh, it's still not entirely clear what happened there it was potentially a design issue with the test. It could have been a contamination issue um mm-hmm. but uh yeah, there were enough labs were having trouble that that the c d c ended up widening their rules to from only allowing their tests to be used to allowing labs to develop their own tests okay proper certification yeah
1: so there was some sort of flaw with the c d c test, which they at first they were only letting people use that c d c test yeah, and so then they kind of relaxed that and said other tests could be brought into the picture. Yes. Okay. So do you but know? Those, and they, it's and fine they, if you don't. But do you know are the the tests that the WHO put out or the World Health Organization are those being used in the U.S. now because the CDC ones had problems or?
2: That's a good question. Um, so it would be fairly straightforward for a lab to take um, the the test that was developed in Germany, um, and and you know, essentially regenerate that same identical test in their lab. Mm-hmm. So my guess is that those tests probably are being um, used somewhere. Okay. I don't know much about like whether the who is distributing their own manufactured mm-hmm. tests. Um, but I know for lab developed tests, they have to go through some regulatory hoops in order to get those certified to show that they work as well as, um, as well as they need to. And I don't know whether uh, developing a test that's essentially identical to, to the test from who also need to undergo that sort of um, certification process.
1: Okay. And so that's another thing that was slowing down the testing is getting other tests yes. certified. But yeah. now, it seems like now we're maybe through that part, like we have tests that are working and working better.
2: I think it's sort of a lab by lab basis. So um, I know the a, a lab that I'm um Sort of some of my some of the people I work with have been have been trying to get a test certified, and they just recently got finally got um certification to do that um, i think I think you're right that more and more tests more and more labs plus like even more and more testing strategies are now being certified so okay. it's it's ramping up, but I think there's still you know so many rules have changed in the last even month about how to how to even do this. Um, and these are things that academic labs just don't think about very much as it is. And so um, it's, I think it's still a struggle getting um, getting all that up and running, running and figuring out how, how all that even works.
1: So is that, you said that um, some people you know just got approval. Is that a lab in Seattle?
2: Yeah, so there's um, an institute called the Brotman Beatty Institute that is um Uh, The the person who I work for, Jason Dury, is, the, I believe, the scientific director of that institute. And they're involved in the Seattle Flu Study, which is um, a study that's been going on for, I think, a year or a year and a half now. Um, And and their primary goal prior to all this was to understand the spread of flu. Um, And so they had infrastructure in place to get nasal swabs from people by mail
1: Um. who... um,
2: so you know, it's sort of an ideal situation in this case because it means that people don't have to go to a clinic and potentially infect other people if they think they're um, if they think they're they're sick.
1: Yeah. Um,
2: but they weren't, you know, a certified clinical lab. They were a research lab, and and um, so this infrastructure was in place. But um, but I think they both had to get certified as a clinical lab to do the testing as mm-hmm. well as um, get their test certified in the first place
1: okay. and on top
2: of that there was some like burden of proof understandably that was needed to show that self-swab tests, so it's the mm. test you know that the nasal swabs done by individuals as opposed to a doctor would produce accurate results so oh, okay
1: yeah, and I think I, I think I might have heard about this lab and and how they were adapting this flu study. Um, from what I understand, just you know, reading online people's accounts of what they've experienced trying to get tested. Um, in a lot of places, because there aren't enough tests for everybody, you know, they're they're kind of restricting it to only the most sick people can get tested. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of people who have symptoms but they're not super sick, so they're just staying at home and riding it out um and so they're not being tested and so this kind of affects our ability to know how widespread it is right mhm yep w- what i read is that they're they're sending out samples to people who don't have symptoms so that they can kind of do more of a, a study to tell what percentage of the po- try to mm-hmm. estimate what percentage yeah. of the population might be infected even if they're asymptomatic
2: yeah, I believe that is correct. Yeah. I think I read this as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay,
1: cool. I didn't know if you would know about that. I was like, oh, that sounds really important. And like something, <laughs> you know, that they're doing in King County where Seattle is. But, um, you know, it sounds like something that would be valuable to do in other places too. So I hope that right. happens. Yeah. Places. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see the results of that. Um, mm-hmm. I'm glad they could switch over from setting the flu to studying this new new uh novel coronavirus. Yeah. So yeah, let's talk more about the test. So, um you said this is a method that you've used a lot in your lab already. Mm-hmm. Um so what what have you been using this method for?
2: Uh oh, so this is a, a method called PCR, which is a stands for polymerase chain reaction and it's it's like a very 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 commonly used method. So, um the the sort of Crux of it is that we can make a bunch of copies of um really any any piece of DNA that we want, so this could be a gene in you know a human genome for example um and then we can do what we want with it we can use it for um for sequencing for example, so to try to understand what is the difference between um you know the DNA code of this particular gene in in people who are healthy versus people who have a disease that we know to be, um, you know, somehow related to to the function of this gene. Okay. Um, I think that's part of the reason that this was a, a really obvious direction to go for for tests like for coronavirus is that versus something like an antibody test is that like it's a very very tried and true method to make a bunch of copies of a piece of DNA.
1: So this is something that anybody studying genetics is probably just doing yeah. as part of the course of their lab work whether oh, they're yeah. studying disease or something else. Yeah. This is a common method just for replicating DNA
2: mm-hmm.
1: or exactly. RNA if it's a virus. Okay. RNA, Yes. Cool. Um, so yeah, you mentioned um so yeah, you mentioned that there's kind of like two types of tests, right? There's detecting the virus, which this this kind of test is, but then there's also detecting immune response. Yeah. So do you know much about like how why that's a harder test to do?
2: Um uh I know a little bit less about that, but okay. I'll tell you what I know. Yeah. So um the idea there is that when you are infected with a virus, your immune system reacts by making antibodies. uh, And those antibodies are sort of have a specific, you know, shape to them that is specific to coronavirus versus something like the flu, for example. Mm. And so what antibody tests or serological tests try to do is, is um, from a blood sample, identify the presence of those antibodies in your, um, in your blood. um my sense is that's a little bit harder to do because um well a you need to i actually don't know about this but my my sense is that it's hard to predict what those antibodies will look like so you need samples from individuals you know who have had coronavirus and and have made these antibodies in order to even make these tests um and and i don't have a great sense of how how that's done but Mm -hmm. um but it takes a little bit more time and um I think the, the big benefit to those, as you've probably read about, is that um, you can detect when someone had the virus and is now no longer does uh, because those antibodies stay in your body for, for um, some time as opposed to the PCR test, which looks for the virus itself. So.
1: Right. So if you've gotten sick and now you're recovered, the you won't det- you won't test positive for the having the virus in you, but right. you might test positive if you look for those antibodies. Yes. Okay. Um, so it sounds like that's something that's more complicated to develop for a new virus, but is something that's feasible and probably already underway.
2: Yeah, something. Lots of labs are are working on this.
1: Cool. So I've heard recently. Um, that there's like a 15 minute test now. Have you heard about mm-hmm. this? Do yeah. You know, so do you know why, like, how did that happen? That There's a test now that's so much faster.
2: Yeah. So I was, I was, I was trying to draw up a similar diagram to the one that I drew up in this first article and um, I can't get at all the details just because this is a, a proprietary test, but there's a couple of places where they, um, I think they save a lot of time. Um, the first is that um before doing PCR, before making copies of, of viral RNA, um, you have to extract that RNA first. So a nasal swab contains human cells and debris and um and viral particles and, and viral particles essentially are just like a capsule with this genetic information, this RNA inside them. And um so you have to, you know, hit the sample with a series of of chemicals in order to break up those um, you know, that capsule, get rid of all that other stuff so that you are left with um hopefully just genetic information in that sample. Um and that takes time. Um that takes time, especially if you're doing it uh, you know, many samples at once. And I think one of the big bottlenecks um for testing labs has been the 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 kits, the reagents that make this relatively quicker to do. Um mm-hmm. but but as you know just companies are sort of understandably having a hard time keeping up with the demand for them now. Right. So I think in that, in that 15 minute test, they uh, figured out a way to um, uh, sort of remove that step that they, you know, somehow are able to break up this, the viral coding and and other things in such a way that, um, you know, that that still produces good results. I might, Guess would be that they're not cleaning the RNA. They're not cleaning everything else out of that sample, but but they can still get good results. Okay. Um,
1: so they're making and, those copies without having to like isolate the section that they're copying or the yeah, virus itself. Yeah. Okay. They're,
2: I think they're also making the copies in a slightly different way. They're using my understanding as a, a strategy that's, um, that's, uh, different than, than, than PCR that that requires sort of these like temperature cycles. Um, and that piece, I don't, um, I have some idea of how they're doing it, but, but not exactly. But I, my understanding is that this company has a, a machine, um, that, that they developed where like all of this stuff happens that was, you know, is already exists in many hospitals and has been used to test for flu. And so um, potentially can be very easily, you know, deployed
1: to do this instead. So. Okay. So are they not using PCR or they're just using like a different version of PCR?
2: My sense is that they're using, they're definitely um, making copies of genetic information. Okay. Um, the um, strategy, I think, I believe it's isothermal PCR, which means essentially it happens at a constant temperature rather than cycling through. Mm. Um, and uh, I haven't quite figured out how that works yet, So what <laughs> okay. particular iso- isothermal strategy they're using.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, but I posted about this on Twitter because I wanted to know and got some some useful information from people about, you know, what this company has done in the past that suggests that, um, yeah. So, okay. So hoping to write that up sometime soon. Oh,
1: cool. We'll look forward to that. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, yeah, okay. So I, I also saw... Today, I think it was just came out, and so you might not have seen this, but um, there was an article in National Geographic talking about how there was a bacteria that was discovered in the hot springs at Yellowstone that's crucial for this process of PCR. Um, I don't know if this is familiar to you (laughs) in all of this concept. Um, Have you heard about this? No,
2: I'm I'm not sure what that could mean. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it's I read call could... it, So I'll see if I I'm not a, a
1: biologist at all, but I'll see if I can no, explain okay. it to you. And and then I have follow up questions that hopefully you will actually know about. Um, but you know, no, you weren't supposed to know about this. I just read no, it today. Okay. Um, no, but okay. so I guess so. You know, you were just talking about this isothermal PCR. So isothermal means like one temperature, right?
2: hmm
1: Um. So it sounds like and. It sounds like the normal PCR process, you were saying it, you cycle through different temperatures. Yeah. So this microbe, they found um, in this microbe from Yellowstone, and this is like in the 60s, um, a long time ago, um, this heat-resistant enzyme, which Mm -hmm. made this PCR process easier because as things cycled through higher temperatures, this enzyme wouldn't oh, break down. So they uh-huh. used this enzyme for PCR and it was discovered originally in Yellowstone.
2: Sorry about that. Oh no we're sitting in my car right now. Oh no <laughs> um, Oh, so this was describing originally originally how PCR was or, or how was is this something new that that they think now will make this process faster? or No, no. So they were kind of just, I, I think see. they were
1: just saying like, oh, this is like, isn't it kind of interesting that, you know, something at the Yellowstone uh, Yellow oh, Hot yeah. Springs was responsible for being able to develop this method which is now being yeah. used i mean like you said this method yeah. has been used throughout genetic research mm-hmm. but now being used in this way that is very important to all of us in this moment right
2: yeah um, no that makes total sense um i think so the, the the polymerase piece of polymerase chain reaction polymerase is just a, a protein that like our body makes in our cells we have various polymerases and and um you know one of them is responsible for reading genes um for essentially you know all the cells in our body have the same genetic information and um the, the reason that different cell types do different things is because different genes are being sort of read and okay. like, when we read genes essentially what we're doing is making copies of those genes and then those copies get used for for downstream things hmm. and so um that's sort of the function of of a polymerase as as sort of a, a protein as an enzyme is that it's able to make copies of DNA Um, and so the reason that we need to cycle through temperatures, um, during PCR is that DNA sort of needs to be, DNA is double stranded, essentially. Like sometimes we think of DNA as a string of letters, a string of A's, T's, C's, and G's, but really it's two strings of letters sort of stuck together Mm -hmm. and heat breaks those strands apart. And so, um, it would make sense that, um because we need to, you know, bring all this up to a fairly high temperature to to break those apart, that uh, a polymerase from something like a bacteria um, that essentially has the same function, but has to function at higher temperatures would be a a better way to do that than to use, you know, polymerase from humans, let's say, which uh, likely at that temperature um, sort of breaks apart and loses
1: its shape. Right. Okay. So, in yeah. this in this analogy of, like, making copies um, of, like, a certain sentence, the polymerase here is, like, the copy machine. Am yeah. I understanding that correctly? Okay. Yeah. Cool. Very interesting. And so, you mentioned that um, there's a visual component here. So, you make all these copies of the DNA, and you can see if there's a lot of copies from the virus. Mm-hmm. Can you explain how that works? Like, how do you see that? Is it just...
2: Yeah. Yeah. So there's um there's a there's a fluorescent probe, which I actually had to look up how this works. This is something I do all the time, but I hadn't I realized I did not understand totally how this works. And actually it's a little bit different than this test than than what I normally do. But what this probe essentially is, it's another little short piece of DNA that um matches like a middle word in this sentence. So it's able to and when I say matches it means it can sort of stick to that piece. Okay. Um to that sentence, and um, it has sort of a fluorescent molecule attached to it um, and some other components that are made such that it only fluoresces it's only it only creates light when that little probe is attached to DNA.
1: Okay. And so we
2: start with a very small amount of DNA and a bunch of these probes just floating around in our in our reaction. Um, and then as we make more and more copies, more and more probes are able to bind. And so the more copies we've made, the more um, the more light the sample emits. And if there was no virus, then we make no copies, and then those bro- probes just sit there, and that sample remains dark. Oh, okay. So your test really lights up. If you have the right. virus. Yeah. And that's really the, the, the output of this test is whether or not there's this fluorescence, this light that yeah. it is made. It's just a sort of a quick way because we have machines that can detect this light. It's a quick way to, to detect that copies are able to be made at all.
1: Cool. Nice. Well, I think that covers a lot of what I wanted to talk about. Um, I'm curious if you wanted to, like, tell us a little bit more about the research you were doing um using PCR but not for Mm -hmm. sending coronavirus presumably
2: um yeah I I mean PCR is involved in just in in a lot of steps but um I could I could tell you what I do and you can tell me to stop when it starts (laughs) because I'm sure as you understand once you start it's hard to stop talking about what you work on (laughs) um so uh but I think it's really cool so so I said I work on lineage tracing um and the idea there is that, um, so you started out as a single cell, all of us started out as a single cell, and then that cell divided into two cells, and then those cells divided into four cells, and they kept going. And so theoretically, you could take all of the cells in your body and you can place them into a very, very large family tree, mm. right? So, like, you can ask questions like, okay, Let's say I take two heart cells from your heart. Are those cells more closely related to one another during this process of, of many, many cell divisions than, let's say, one of those cells and a cell in your brain, for example? And so but maybe sort of makes sense that they are because these cells, you know, they're more similar to one another. They're reading the same genes um, uh, but we don't really know that. Like we don't, we can't really visualize that process. Mm. Um, and so I work on a method that that uses CRISPR, among other things, to to try and um, you know be able to reconstruct that sort of family tree of all the cells in a single organism, or or a tumor, for example, or any any other place where cells divide and divide and make more cells. Wow. Okay. Yeah.
1: So, um, yeah, I have all sorts of questions. <laughs> <laughs> so you said you use CRISPR for people who are not biologists. Can you just explain what CRISPR is?
2: Yeah. So, um, I think CRISPR has been in the news so much that I think different people have very different ideas of what it is. And in part that that makes a lot of sense because it it can be used for a lot of things. Okay. Um, and I think most com- commonly we hear about it being used to connect it or to, um, um correct genetic defects so um you know you know change an a to a t in a gene where we know that that it t is is harmful for example um but actually i think that the most sort of like minimal thing that that crispr can do is um we can use crispr to make a break in dna so just to cut dna at a very specific place mm. um, and so When we cut DNA, our cells have mechanisms to repair. You know, DNA is very, very long, DNA breaks. um, You know, that's that's a regular part of being a cell. And um, so we have mechanisms in our cells to fix those breaks, but they're not um, amazingly efficient. And so uh, occasionally we will get little insertions or little deletions that occur. So maybe a letter or two gets lost or, or some information is gained. And so this is normally like a, a problem. If if your goal is to try and make some sort of specific change in the DNA, that's a problem. In my case, I'm actually using that um, sort of quark of the system in order to mark DNA of cells in a way that it can be tracked.
1: Oh, so, okay.
2: Yeah. Like if we go back to that family tree example, if we start out with a cell, And it divides into two, and I make a tiny mark in the DNA of one of those cells, and then we let those cells keep dividing, then half of those cells will have the mark, and half of them will not have the mark. And so I I know from that that the cells that have the mark are a little bit more related to one another than they are to all of the cells that don't,
1: if that makes sense. Yeah. So Um, This raises another question for me. So is CRISPR being used in this virus test, um, or is that a separate method?
2: Uh, no, that's a separate method. Oh, okay. For, um, so I, I there have been conversations about, you know, how we might use that strategy, I know, but um, I haven't heard of anything, anything in the works.
1: Okay. Okay. So now, so you're looking at the
2: lineage of cells within one organism? Yeah. So that's one place that we can use a, a, a technology like this. You know, I, I think that the idea is, is really elegant and simple. And the in practice, it's very, very hard to get this to work <laughs> well enough because ultimately we want to make these little changes. Um, we want to make a lot of these little changes. We mm. want them to happen over time in, in a certain way. And then we need to be able to read off those changes alongside mm. some other information about the cell. And so um, I work on um, mostly at this point in, in, in cells on making that strategy work really well and, um,
1: What kind of cells?
2: What kind of cells? Mm -hmm. I work uh, in a cell line that's, that's, uh, not particularly interesting. It was one that, or I thought was not particularly interesting. So it was one that I chose just because it's very easy to work with. And I figured I'd get this working well in this cell line and then, and then move on to something, to something different. Um, but it turns out, and this was maybe something I, I should have expected. Um, that this cell line is actually very unstable um, in terms of the number of chromosomes that it has. Yeah. So um what I'm observing is that over the time of these cell divisions is gaining and losing chromosomes in ways in ways that that make for, for a sort of interesting story about um, you know, about like the order in which those events happen and and how um you know, and how that can explain particular differences in 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 the genes that so those cells end up reading. And what's interesting about that is that this is a, a sort of a hallmark of of cancer cells. Is that um, one of the big thing that we sort of universally see across all cancers, I, I believe, is that um, they start. You know, those cells become very unstable in terms of karyotype, in terms of the number of of, of chromosomes that they have. Yeah. Um, and sort of understanding the progress of that, how, you know, the loss of a particular part of chromosome three, for example, impacts how that cell behaves afterwards is is an important part of understanding how, you know, cancer ultimately develops.
1: Okay, great. So, um, so how did you end up in this line of work? You're a PhD student, right?
2: Yeah. So, um, I was working in a lab for quite a while, um, uh, at the University of Minnesota, actually um, doing stuff that was uh, only very peripherally related to this. When I started to do a little bit more work on the genomics side, on the the side of, um, you know, genomics, I think, is a a field is sort of like genetics on the large scale, where we all of a sudden have all of these tools where we can learn, get a lot of information about, like, you know, what, what every gene is doing in a in a cell rather than just studying one particular gene. Um, and so I found genomics to be very fun because you do have so much, so much information. There are so many pieces of the puzzle to, to play around with in order to try and understand, you know, why things are working in the way that they're working. So, um, so I joined a lab where I, I, I get to, or where I, I get to, Play around a lot with data and generate a lot of data and and ask these ultimately big questions that I think are really fascinating to me and and others, yeah, and so actually at the
1: beginning of our conversation, we were talking about um before i think before we started the interview part we were That's talking okay. about we were talking about how we're both working from
2: home and you were saying you do a lot of um computer simulations now um yeah, it's less of simulations but but I think a, a one of the one of the big unsolved problems in this field of of trying to understand how they uh, essentially trying to make these family trees of cells is that we don't actually have good computational tools to make these family trees. Okay. Um, I thought that this was a part that was solved because it's a it's the, the way that we're doing this is pretty similar to um, to how we make evolutionary trees. Okay. So another type of tree we can use DNA and differences in DNA in order to infer how related animals are to one another. You know, mm-hmm. our DNA is more similar to chips than than, you know, to pigs. And so essentially what I'm doing in making these little changes in DNA is, is trying to, you know, find the cells with more similar you know, with, with more changes in common. Um, you know, and say, okay, these are more closely related. These are more close rel- closer relatives than um than they are to, to some other cell. But um, because we have the power to like get this information from many, many, many cells, uh, the the tools that were developed for evolutionary biology turn out not to be um, really scalable to, mm. to the sort of data that we have. And so it's been sort of fun to realize that um, this is a, an unsolved problem and, and fun to, to try and to try and solve it. Okay. That sounds really hard. <laughs> <laughs> it's been really cool. It's been like it's, it's it's a I'm I feel invested and excited and um and it's uh, that motivates you to keep going. <laughs> All right. Cool. Okay.
1: Um, let's see. I think that covers a lot of what I wanted to talk about. Is there anything else that we didn't touch on that you'd like to talk about? It's been
2: cool for me through the process of writing this thing to realize that like we as scientists have so much of a voice, so much more of a voice than we sometimes think. Mm. Um, I originally, you know, I, I hadn't, I hadn't written anything like this before. And, and part of the motivation for that was that a couple of weeks before I had talked to, um, I was talking to a friend and uh, she, you know, at this point, the scientific community was canceling conferences. It, it was very, very clear that, that this message that, that we should, you know, begin social distancing was was seemed very clear in the scientific community but um talking to a friend about it and she said you know what can you call my mom and talk to my mom about this because she keeps thinking that it's probably time to start canceling events within our church um and and, and sort of everybody around her is saying oh no no you're reacting. this is you know mm-hmm. the media is making this out to be a bigger deal and and so i talked to her mom and it became like very clear that like people appreciate hearing information from scientists, especially at a time when like there's so much out there, so much information out there and um, uh, people just don't know what to believe. And so it's been a a, sort of a a cool experience to, to recognize that and, and realize that like we have, we have a lot of power as scientists to put out content that's accurate that people will, you know, listen to because, because we have, you know, they they trust that we have some reason to to be right. So yeah, I think that
1: that about covers it. Now there's one part of my show um, at the end. Normally we play a game that I created called GTA. Uh, Guess that acronym. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, Because in science we use a lot of acronyms. We've been using one PCR here. Um, And so normally I have like a co-host, but, Today it's just you and me, Chad. <laughs> okay. um, and so usually I make the co hosts try to guess these acronyms, but um, I'll let you, um, if you have any, I didn't, I didn't prepare you for this, but so if there's any acronyms besides PCR that you commonly use in your field that you want to throw to me to try to guess what it might mean.
2: Um, do you want to try CRISPR? CRISPR. I can oh, spell that for you. Okay. It's- I think it is it C-R-I-S-P-R yes
1: okay to
2: be honest Um, I don't know that I can get this one
1: right couldn't really identify something personally relevant I love that that was so quick that's amazing is that it is that what CRISPR stands for do
2: you remember what CRISPR stands for offhand um I can do it backwards.
1: Uh, Oh, interesting.
2: Uh, Or I can do pieces of it. Uh, The I is interspersed. The R is repeats. Interspersed. No, I can't do this. I bet bet I'll be able to as soon as we get off the phone (laughs) here.
0: Oh, gosh. Hey, you guys. This is Laura. Just jumping in from the future with my use of Google technologies to let you know that CRISPR stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. Understandable to not remember all of that. Okay, back to Anna.
1: We chatted a little bit about what CRISPR is, but just um, refresh our memory
2: about what CRISPR is. Yeah. um So yeah. So so very originally, so, so CRISPR is like a, a, a actually a system it's it's essentially a bacteria's immune system and it's a way for them to keep track of viruses that they have been infected with Mm -hmm. in order to um identify when they've when they're again infected with this virus and chop up the dna of that or the the rna of that virus um which is a, a bit of a complicated thing but but essentially what the pieces of CRISPR that we have adapted for, for biology is, is this, um, ability to take a a particular specific known, uh, sequence, DNA sequence, sequence of A, T, Cs, and Gs, um, and send a a, a protein to that sequence that's able to cut that DNA. Mm -hmm. And so in the bacteria, the, the, um, the, the viral RNA just gets chopped up so that I can't do anything. And then in our case, we can use this for to make changes in the DNA, to make little insertions, insertions or deletions in the DNA, and, and various other other
1: more creative strategies. Okay, so this is used for genetic engineering.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it makes it much much easier to make very specific um, insertions, deletions, changes in the DNA than than we could do with other techniques cool well thanks so
1: much for explaining all of that and um, yeah yeah yeah, great great talking to to you
0: you just listened to lab talk with laura on 91.1 fm wmua amherst my guest today was anna mingana um talking to us on her phone from seattle washington um PhD student at University of Washington studying genomics. I hope everybody is safe and well and doing as as good as you can under the current circumstances. Um, Yeah. The jingle at the beginning of our show was written and produced by Matt Woodland. Online hosting of Lab Talk with Laura is supported by the Emmerich Labs in the Polymer Science Department at UMass Amherst. Thank you so much for listening. Keep it locked to 91.1 FM WMUA Amherst.